This morning's reading is from Esther chapters 1 and 2. This is Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of the kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver and a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zether, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Mimukim, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mimukim replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen con queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it please the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the law of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of, Queens, of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did what Memucan proposed. 
He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Esther chapter 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Let the young woman who, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the woman six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, had suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Teba, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. 
He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthna and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Thank you, Tracy and Pauline, for that long reading with lots of difficult names. Um, before we pray, I just wanted us to uh, think for uh, a few minutes about this book of Esther. We're, the plan is to look um, at this for, over the next four weeks. And I just wanted to say a few things about the story and the kind of story that it is. And hopefully that will help us um, as we explore it together. Firstly, you'll see even from verse 1 of chapter 1 that this is a true story. We're dealing here with history. Uh, verse 1 says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. So the people we're going to meet are real. The events that are described really happened. It's a true story. It's also a thriller of a story. Um, it is written in a really compelling and dramatic way. Um, it's written in a way to make us laugh and cheer at points and make our jaws drop um, because ultimately it's written to be remembered. It's also a dark story. Um, uh, there is in this story the abuse of women. There is the abuse of men. There is the threat of genocide. There is gallows. There is bloodshed. And I will seek to be careful and sensitive as we think about these things. It's a story um, which is not about perfect people. Um, you, if you know the story of Esther, you may remember Mordecai's faith. You may remember Esther's courage. If I perish, I perish. And at those points, there are wonderful examples to us. But these characters don't always get it right. Um, sometimes they do things which are questionable. And so we would be wise uh, not to assume that we must copy them at every point. Uh, much of the time, the author simply describes what happens and what they do without signaling to us whether that's right or wrong, wise or compromised. Next, it's a story about God. That might seem strange to you if you've, if you've read this. Um, because his name is not even mentioned on any, in any of the chapters. But make, make no mistake, God is the central character of the book of Esther. And it teaches us lessons about his kingship and his rule, his hidden hand and his perfect timing. And it is a story about God's salvation, about his commitment to rescue his people. 
And in that way, it will point us forward to our salvation and our rescuer. So I hope it's going to be a really good book for us to look at. Um, I would encourage you, um, if you have the chance in the week leading up to Sunday, um, to, to read, at, at the very least, to read the, the, um, the, the chapters in advance, maybe even to uh, each week in one sitting, uh, read the whole story or listen to the whole story on, on audio Bible. The more familiar you are with this story, uh, the more you'll be able to get uh, from it. Uh, that's all I want to say by, by way of introduction to this, to this book. Um, let me pray, and then uh, we'll look at chapters 1 and 2. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that as we open up this book, that you would teach us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us understanding and insight and that through this you would bless us, that you would point us to Christ, that you would point us to yourself and grow us in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's really in charge? That's our question for this morning. Who is really in charge? Who actually calls the shots and runs the show? Who is the real ruler when it comes to our world and our lives? I guess some people would point to these guys and say, oh, it's, it's the Bidens and the Putins and the Zelenskys and so on. These are the ones who are in charge. And of course, there's some truth to that, isn't there? Because what these men and other world leaders decide have huge ramifications on our world and on our lives. Others will say, well, no, 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 it's not so much them. Uh, I run the show. I call the shots, at least when it comes to my life. Okay, I can't control the wars and the uh, interest rates and the job market, but I can control my response to those things. I'm in charge. So you think of the uh, famous poem, Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm the one who's in charge. And again, there's some truth in that, in the sense that we're not just victims of our circumstances. Um, we have real choices to take. We have real responsibility over our response to, to, to these things. But I guess as Christians, we'll probably answer this question differently and say, who's in charge? Who's really in charge? We will say, well, no, ultimately it is God. Yes, world leaders have got authority. Yes, we've got responsibility over our response to what happens. But ultimately, over everything, it's God who's in charge. He's the one running the show. But is he? Is he really in charge. Because the reality is that we just don't see God rule the world. We see Putin waging war. We see Zelensky garnering support. We see Biden on Air Force One. We see individuals uh, um, overcome great adversity. 
taking responsibility for themselves. But God, we don't see him. Where is he? If he does rule, why can't we see him? And because we don't see his rule, as Christians, we may still call him king, out of respect, perhaps, or out of habit, but deep down we question, is he really in charge? Who's really in charge? Well, that's the question, one of the key questions that Esther chapters 1 and 2 speak to. So let's dive in and look at chapter uh, 1. Scene 1 of Esther, Queen Vashti gets the sack. And we're introduced straight away to King Xerxes. He's uh, the king of the Persian Empire. Um, and his rule, we're told, is extensive. He rules over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. Uh, one writer puts it this way, if you were to superimpose this on a modern map, it would more or less cover northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and northern Sudan. With the exception of southern Greece, this is the entire known world. So Xerxes is literally the king of the world. And as we go on, we see that he has all of the wealth and dazzle that goes with it. So he throws a six-month-long banquet for all of his military and government leaders to show them his wealth. He then uh, throws a, a seven-day people's banquet for the residents of Susa. The men, they're invited to the royal gardens where there's gold and silver and costly stones, pearls and diamonds everywhere. Each person has a bespoke gold goblet and there's a long line of waiters to serve them however much royal wine they want. At the same time, the women of Susa are hosted by Queen Vashti inside in the palace. So here is the king of the world in all of his splendor and majesty and wealth. And yet on the last day of the banquet, this king of the entire world doesn't get his way. We're, we're told that he's in high spirits from wine. That is, he's drunk. And um, whether he boasts to the men about his queen, uh, we can imagine, um, not about her character or her intellect, but about her looks, her appeal. Bring her over here and you'll see. In any case, the messengers go over to the palace. Uh, queen Vashti, the king has commanded your presence in the royal garden. Oh, what for? Uh, for the men to look at your beauty. No. Tell him, no, I'm not going. And so these poor messengers go back outside to, to deliver the, the message to Xerxes, who it's fair to say takes it like a toddler and throws all of his toys out of the pram. How dare she? Does she not know who I am? 
But for all of his kingly anger, he doesn't have a clue what to do. So he calls an emergency meeting in the situation room with his seven wise men. They're not wise men at all. They're yes men. And he asks them, what must be done to Vashti for this? And perhaps there's a moment's silence. Is anyone going to tell him to put on his big boy pants and go and say sorry? No. Uh, Mamukin uh, really enters into the mood of things and gets really very carried away. He says, be under no illusion, sire. This is indeed extremely serious, an extremely precarious situation. This is not just some personal snub against your majesty, as serious as that would be. Vashti's despicable example threatens to poison every single marriage across the entire empire. Even now, I can hear the fabric of society crumble. An A-star performance from Mamukin. And so Vashti gets the sack. Never again may she enter the king's presence. Which, when you think about it, given she didn't want to be in his presence anyway, I'm not sure she's that bothered about. And the entire empire is informed. So as the curtain goes down at the end of scene one, in the palace of the most important man on the face of the planet, uh, the queen's throne room is empty. There's a vacancy. The queen's crown is sitting on a, on a bench by itself with no one to wear it. Then on to scene two. Esther the Jew is made queen. Um, as the curtain goes up for scene two, we meet uh, Xerxes deep in conversation with one of his aides. And we look at him and think, well, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Are you planning some military invasion? Are you, some, are you discussing something of great political significance? But as we find out, no, they're talking about girls. Because the farmer wants a wife. The king wants a queen. And his aide suggests an empire-wide search for a new, beautiful, young queen. And she must be young and beautiful. That is very, very clear from this conversation. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins. Let them be brought into the harem. Let beauty treatments be given them. And then the king can choose whichever girl he fancies the most. And being a rather fickle man, the king is quite pleased with this idea. Then our focus is directed away from the palace uh, to the suburbs and to a humble father figure, to Mordecai, a Jew whose family had been exiled from Jerusalem, and to Esther, his adopted daughter, an orphan. A young woman who just so happens to be exactly the king's type. We're told that she is both young and beautiful. And unlike uh, Vashti, she's very, very compliant. Exactly the king's type. And so it isn't long before she's swept up into this empire-wide search for a new queen, taken into the palace along with thousands of other 
young, beautiful women in the empire. But we mustn't be mistaken. This is maybe where our um, children's Bibles maybe lead us down the wrong avenue, because this isn't some fun, innocent dating show. Who's going to be the next queen of Persia? Isn't it all good fun? Now, this whole thing is really sinister. Uh, these young women, they don't volunteer for this. Uh, the language used is that they are taken into the palace, whether they want to go or not. They undergo a year's beauty treatment, which might sound very fancy, but where is us all heading but to the night when they've got to sleep with the king, whether they want to or not? After that night, they'll get moved from the virgins to the concubines and become one of the king's used girls. And whilst they're unlikely to be chosen again, they have to stay ready just in case the king remembers their name and wants to use them again. So this isn't some... This isn't anything fun. This is, a, this is really a, a seedy sex factory. This is a Jeffrey Epstein operation. And it's not just the girls who are abused. Did you notice how many times uh, the word eunuch comes up in these uh, two chapters? Um, it's the men too. What's their story? Well, again, these are, met, these are boys who would have been taken into the palace likely against their will, forcibly dismembered, that is, have their genitalia would have been cut off. Why? So that they might serve the king by beautifying his girls. Again, more worthless cogs in the king's sex factory. It's all very, very sinister. But anyway, as we come to the end of scene two, and into scene three, some very strange happenings uh, begin to happen, unusual things. Because out of all of the thousands and thousands of young, beautiful women from across the empire, who begins to emerge as the front runner to become the next queen? And who does everyone seem to like? And who indeed, after her night in the king's bedroom, gets chosen to be the new king against all the odds it's Esther, the Jew. What are the chances? Scene three, Mordecai the Jew saves Xerxes' life. As the curtain goes up for scene three, more unlikely and very strange things happen. We're told that two disgruntled doormen uh, hatch a plan to assassinate King Xerxes. But who has a job at the king's gate? Yeah, working alongside them. And who happens to overhear their plot? And who knows someone in the palace who can warn the king? Mordecai the Jew. Against all the odds, what are the chances? And whilst Mordecai's heroism is written up in the king's records, in the presence of the king, no less, very, very strangely... Mordecai is not rewarded or honored for saving the king's life. It's very, very strange. It's out of character for Xerxes not to do this. It's not because he's against uh, Mordecai, because he's a Jew. He doesn't know his background. Xerxes just seems to forget, 
to honor the man who has just saved his life. It's strange. But what's the result of these strange happenings? Well, all of this means that just, just a few years before God's people are about to face the threat of extinction, something they don't know yet, but we do, we have a Jewish woman, Esther, uh, wearing the queen's crown. And we have a Jewish man, Mordecai, whose name has been recorded as a hero in the king's history books, but who for some reason has not been rewarded or honored. In other words, in Esther, the Jew, we have someone whom the king of the world fancies big t- owes big time. As I say, all of this, just a few years before God's people are about to face the threat of extinction. And with that, the curtain comes down at the end of scene three. So what does this teach us? What does this show us about who really is in charge? Well, of course, on first glance, it it just looks like Xerxes. Um, He's got all of the bling. He's in the spotlight. But the more that we, we look at this, you see that he doesn't always get his way. And that though God never even gets a mention, God is the one calling the shots. Uh, for, the, for those with the eyes of faith, his name is written all through these pages. He's not the, the star actor in the spotlight, but he is the genius director behind the scenes, behind the camera, orchestrating the, everything. So the king's fury at Vashti, the king's fancy for Esther, the king's forgetfulness about Mordecai, all of it is being orchestrated by God's hidden hand. Here is God quietly moving his people into position. And that should give us huge confidence as God's people What we're seeing here is that God really is in charge. And he really is moving everything towards our good. In the language of Romans 8, God works out all things to the God works out all things together for the good of those who love him. And in Esther 1 and 2, we see that that is not just a nice perspective, a nice sounding idea, but that is true. That is real. That is a fact. It means that on the world stage, nothing we ever read about in the papers or see on the telly is outside of his sovereign plan to rescue his people. He'll never get a mention. We shouldn't expect it. But his hidden hand really is behind all of it. And it means that in your life too, nothing happens by chance. God's good hand is behind all of it. Every joy and disappointment, every open and closed door. We may not understand why. It may not mean that our lives become easy, but we can be sure that his good and hidden hand is behind all of it. So this should give us enormous confidence. God really is in charge. 
and even more so when we consider God's character. People can get very used to corrupt leaders when that's all they've experienced, and so used to it that they can't imagine a leader who isn't corrupt. Um, on holiday a few years ago, and I saw this uh, graffiti on the wall, all leaders are corrupt, and I snapped it. I thought, that is, that is really interesting. And of course, if your experience of leaders is corrupt, no wonder someone thinks like this. But God, the real king, the true leader, doesn't fit that mold at all. He's patient and kind. So Xerxes, he's, he, he's got the temperament of a toddler. He flies off a handle. God, the real leader, the real king, by contrast, is slow to anger. In 1 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus' immense patience, immense patience towards him, not striking him down for persecuting the church, but showing him mercy. Or in 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter, again, speaks of God's patience, yeah, putting up with our rebellion until the day of judgment, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, immensely patient. So I wonder, do you believe that about God? Yeah, that he really is in charge, and that he's not corrupt and impatient like other leaders and kings and rulers can be, but that he's patient, that he gives us time. He gives us time to repent and time to grow. Of course, the right response to his patience is not to test it, but to repent. Or you think about how callous and selfish King Xerxes is, enslaving all of those uh, women and those men to serve him, to serve his sexual appetite, monstrous. By contrast, our king, the real king, is the very opposite, incredibly kind, who doesn't enslave anyone, but who liberates men and women from sin and shame and condemnation, whose son came not to be served, but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many. So do you believe this about God, that he is kind, and that when he calls us into his service, it is not to dehumanize us, but rather to bless us and to see us grow and blossom and flourish, that we might become even more fully human So let's be those who gladly trust and follow and obey and serve him, the real king of the world, the king of the world who is patient and kind. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful reminder from your word that you really are in charge, that you rule, that your hidden hand is behind everything 
that nothing is outside of your good plan to rescue your people, that you are working all things together for our good. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would give us huge confidence in you. And we pray that we would um, rejoice in the reality that you are not like other kings and rulers, but that you are immensely patient, that you are kind and good, that you are for us, that you want to bless us, that you want us to grow and to flourish as we come to you for salvation and forgiveness and newness of life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.